morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. That's found on page 802 and 803 in the Pew Bibles. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. For behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4. This is the finale of our sermon series through the book of Malachi. And our passage today is the end of that prophecy, and it's also the end of the Old Testament. After this point, there's going to be 400 years of silence. Not not from me, uh, but I saw some of you get excited there for... No, I mean in terms of divine revelation. After Malachi, the Lord is going to be eerily silent towards his people for four centuries before he sends another prophet. And uh, more on that a little bit later. Now, speaking of finales, it's only appropriate, especially in a sermon series titled The Airing of Grievances, that we would mention the most infamous finale in television history. And I'm talking about the last episode of Seinfeld. Now, if you don't know anything about Seinfeld, don't worry. You're not missing anything. In fact, it's a show about nothing, so you don't have to worry about anything. Uh, but if you don't know, uh, Seinfeld, that, that series featured the hijinks of four single adults who were living in New York City in the 90s. And all of these characters are incredibly selfish. They're arrogant. They're nitpicky. And in each episode, they would get themselves into, you know, a, let's just say an interpersonal disaster. But then 22 minutes later, all would be well, as, as far as the four characters are concerned. You know, Jerry, Elaine, George, Kramer, they, they all came out 22 minutes later smelling like roses, but they left just a ton of relational damage in their wake. And at some point... Uh, Jerry's nemesis, a mailman named Newman, prophesied, hear me and hear me well, the day will come. Oh yes, mark my words, Seinfeld, your day of reckoning will come. When an evil wind will blow through your little play world and wipe that smug smile off your face, and I will be there in all my glory, watching, watching as it all comes crumbling down. Anyway, it turns out that the Seinfeld finale featured that great and awesome day that Newman had prophesied about, that day of reckoning. 
And this finale featured, a, it was basically a courtroom scene where a long line of witnesses, characters from past episodes, widows, immigrants, the handicapped, these would all parade in and out of the courtroom detailing all of the horrible things that this foursome had said and done. And then at the end, the judgment comes down and the very last scene of Seinfeld shows these four reprobates together in a jail cell. And um, that's, that was it for one of, the, one of the most acclaimed sitcoms of all time. Now, of course, we're talking about a silly sitcom, but it does depict the world in which we live, albeit in a lesser and much lighter way. The people of Malachi's day, for example, they're, they're struggling when they see the arrogant and the evil prosper. They failed to see in real time the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And the worst of it was that they failed to understand what category they fit into. It seemed clear to them that they were in the category of the righteous, but their, their behavior showed otherwise. All I'm saying is that this state of affairs really cries out for resolution. It, it's, uh, you can't last that long, just like you can't hear a dissonant chord for very long where your whole body wants the thing to be resolved. And so through the mouth of Malachi, his messenger, the Lord foretells of a day. On that day, he says in verse 18, there, we will be able to see clearly the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't serve God. Now in our passage today, as a finale, the Lord is going to continue to describe this day this coming day, this great and awesome day of the Lord. And he does this for the encouragement of the righteous who are suffering, and he does this to warn the wicked who are causing others to suffer and who will one day, if there is no change, themselves suffer. So the warning is also for the many who consider themselves to be righteous but who might actually be in the other category. Again, uh, remember the context of Malachi. These are faithless Israelites. And this is, this is demonstrated by their half-hearted service to God and their horrible treatment of their fellow man. The bad news is that a day of reckoning is coming, but the good news is there's still time to repent. Now, in our time this morning, we want to see three things about that great and awesome day of the Lord. We want to talk about the distinctions of that day. That'll take the bulk of our time, in case you're wondering. Secondly, the duty in light of that day. And third, the dispatch before that day. The distinctions, the duty, the dispatch. First, then, the distinctions of that day. And verse 1, you'll see, begins with the little word for, which tells us that there's a strong connection with the previous sentence. In the previous sentence, the Lord God spoke of a coming day in which the distinction between the wicked and the righteous are going to be clearly seen. 
And, and so this very next verse grounds that proposition. It gives the, the reasons or more explanation for that proposition. In other words, the Lord God is going to now explain what he means when he says that that day will clearly reveal distinctions. All of that to say that this is a terrible place for later editors to have put a new chapter division. This is quite unfortunate. So it's fine. We're not going to change it now at this point. But I just want you to be clear in your minds that this is not a brand new section. Rather, this is the second part of that previous grievance, that last grievance that the Lord has with his people. And it serves as a closer look at this coming day that, that has just been prophesied about. And the first thing that we need to know about that coming day is that it is a day of distinctions. It's a day of distinctions. The point is, in a nutshell, this coming day, this one day that we're talking about, is going to affect two distinct groups of people in two distinct ways. Now, tomorrow is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day in which we honor a man of distinction, a man who worked tirelessly to remove the arbitrary and, and the godless distinctions that uh, we insert into the human race. And whenever there would be a civil rights march on those days, that one event would clearly reveal that there was two factions. If anyone wondered if there was any kind of problems, real problems during that day, it would come out on that one event, on that one march. It would reveal that one group was bigoted and loud and angry and to that group, this march that they were witnessing signaled the end of their era. And the other group was peaceful and confident and hopeful. And the march for them signaled the beginning of their freedom. So that's just a, a small illustration to say that one event can mean two very different things for two very different groups of people. And those distinctions are clearly seen in that one event. Now the prophet Malachi speaks of a coming day, a great and awesome day, a day when the Lord God will act in a decisive and in a distinctive way. This same great day was announced previously by lots of different uh, pro uh, prophets and most notably I think is Joel because he uses this exact same language, great and awesome day. But all of them spoke of this time in the future in which God would rise and act in a big way. But in the mouth of Malachi, the present messenger, this same message comes with fresh urgency. And you can notice in the text words like behold at the beginning of verse 1 and 5. You can see the, rep the repeated word coming. And all of these features really serve to highlight the fact that this great day is imminent. It could happen at any time. And on that day, the Lord God will act. The point is, if you're wise, you will act before the day that God acts. 
you will act so that you will be settled as to the outcomes of that day. You, you understand, don't you, that prophecy and preaching, to a large extent, is for the purpose of preparation. Last week we began to see the distinctions emerge, not just between the people of Israel and their pagan enemies, not just between what we might call the church and the world or believers and unbelievers, but we even began to see distinctions within the people of Israel. There were those among the people of Israel that were faithless and fearless. They had no fear of God before their eyes. And they were blasphemous. And then there was another group within Israel, a remnant, we might call them. And these are people that feared the Lord, who esteemed his name. They were faithful to the covenant. These are people that served God in, in humility. So the, the, my point in mentioning that is that the lines that the Lord draws are often quite different from the simplistic ones that we draw. For example, we, we might say, it's well, it's pretty simple, the distinctions that there are in the world. It's between churchgoer and non-churchgoer. But the, the, Lord's, the Lord's lines are not that clear and simple. The Lord's lines are around those who make up his treasured possession. And the meaningful distinctions are between those who esteem his name and those who do not. Now, this, this distinction kind of gets cashed out in a very practical distinction between those who serve him and those who do not. You can see that again in verse 18. I mentioned this right from the out, outset just to invite you, as I want to just invite you through this whole time, into this kind of self-examination that the Lord intends when he speaks these things. Test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because the, the stakes are very, very high, as we'll see in a minute. So what we have in verses 1 to 3 is a description of that great and awesome day of the Lord, a day in which the Lord will act and the lines, the distinctions, are going to be clearly revealed. This same day, this one day, has two very different results for two very different groups of people. And I want to just think about those groups for a minute with you. The first group is, you can see it in the text, the arrogant, the wicked. If you, if you piece all of this together in, in the whole chapter, in the previous chapter, you can come up with other descriptions of these folks, evildoers, people who don't fear the Lord, people that don't obey him. These are people that live for themselves. They snub their noses at their creator. They trample over other people as they pursue power and possessions and prestige and, and pleasure. And I, I just want to say, if that describes you in any way, if you're able to be honest with yourself and say that that actually sounds a lot like you, then you'll want to pay attention to the commentary. So this will be a commentary on your life and the fitting conclusion 
to this life, which is predicted in verse 1. The commentary is that you are stubble. Stubble. This is very common language in scripture that's used to describe people sometimes, their possessions, uh, their, pro their products, you know, their foundation. Now, for example, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, on first glance, you might think that that is a reference to the chairman of our deacon board when he neglects, neglects to shave for a couple of days. But that's not what the text means when it says hay wood stubble. <laughs> it's talking about the foundations on which people build their lives apart from Christ. It's talking about everything that such a person produces. Our passage uses that language to describe the person themselves. And the point is that all of it is empty. It's, Matt promised you that, that we'd learn the definition of stubble. It's like, those are like cuttings of dried stalks. Just like little bits of dried out hay, sawdust. It's nothing. And, and these people will be revealed as such on that great day. Because Malachi describes that day as coming like a burning oven. And the image here is of like a portable kiln or, I don't know, a, a, some sort of a cooking ve vessel. People used it for cooking or for other uses. You can think of that big green egg um, that some of you cook delicious meat in. Uh, they had things like that in their day. And the point is that, that this day that we're describing is coming like that. But when it comes, it's already going to be up to temperature. It comes blazing hot. But if the arrogant and evildoers are like stubble, then you know what's happening. They're going to be consumed in an instant. There's, there's nothing to them. There's no substance. And, and all that they are, everything that they possess... All of it's going to just be licked up by the burning hot flames in one hot second. Remember Judah's complaint in chapter 3, verse 15. The people complained that evildoers put God to the test and, and they escape. But God is saying they will certainly not escape. God's test is coming and it's going to be a test of fire. And when that test comes, the, the wicked and all their works are going to be completely consumed. It's going to be burned up so that nothing remains. And the language at the end of verse 1 is that it's going to leave them neither root nor branch. And you know that when a standing tree catches fire, when it burns down, it typically only burns down to the stump. Because being underground, the roots are wet, they're protected. But look at the text. The, the burning of this day is going to be so intense that it's going to burn all the way down from branch to root. In other words, what we're talking about here is total destruction of the wicked. Now, don't make this next move. 
It's a mistake to press these images too far. Groups like uh, the Seventh-day Adventists do this when they use a passage like this to support their belief in annihilationism. And that's just a fancy word for the belief that the wicked are going to be destroyed so as to cease, to stop existing. In other words, they believe that judgment is finite. But of course, this contradicts, contradicts the truth that human beings were immortal souls. And one day we're going to be reunited with resurrected bodies. We, we folks, I hope you understand this, we were made for eternity. Every one of us. And in the case of the wicked, this means eternal conscious torment. The, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to clarify when he comes on the scene and begins to teach. He'll clarify that the wicked are consigned to a state and to a place where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So don't mix these metaphors to come up with some false teaching. If you're an unbeliever here today, and if you're doing all of the calculations, I think that's a good thing for you to do. But don't misunderstand, okay? What, what you are set to receive is not judgment that's over in a split second. What you're set to receive is an eternal judgment. And what you have here is just a snapshot, and it's designed to show your current trajectory. It's meant to show you that neither you nor your works will be able to stand for a second on that great day. This is designed to humble you into repentance. But there's another group who are going to face that day, that same day. But this is a very distinct group. There are those, verse 2, who fear the name of the Lord and who serve him. This is a group of people that are described as the righteous in verse 18. And in verse 17, they're likened to sons. They're called God's treasured possessions. From the context and by implication, we can also say that these are people who, in their lifetime, suffered at the hands of wicked people. They were rejected or oppressed, persecuted. Maybe they were imprisoned. Such people need to know that a day is most certainly coming. A great and awesome day is almost on the scene. It's a day in which the Lord God will rise up and act on behalf of his people. Again, we're, forgive me if I'm saying this too much, I want you to understand we're talking about the same day that's coming upon the wicked. And we have a very similar picture as what was used for in the case of the wicked the picture is of heat this time though it's not exactly a furnace it's the sun s-u-n verse look at verse two but for you who fear my name the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall well, there's a lot going on there and certainly lots that we could say about that, but I think that you understand the picture. It's a picture of a sun 
not with its burning, oppressive heat, but with its warm, life-giving rays. And so then you have this picture of young calves who have been cooped up in their stanchions in a cold, dark barn all winter. And suddenly the, the farmer swings open the barn doors and the calves run out into the barnyard, leaping and skipping in the sunshine. It's a beautiful picture. Now, if you were raised in such a way that it's hard for you to conjure up, you know, uh, agrarian type images, I think you can just relate in general because you live in western New York and you know that when the snow has finally melted and the sun finally comes out, I'm talking typically about the month of May here, you, you know that you've been cooped up in your house for, what, six months? And it's been cold and dreary, but finally you're free. And that, that warm sun just feels so good on your face and on your arms because, you know, you may have jumped the gun a little bit, but you're wearing shorts and a T-shirt. Maybe, maybe you're even wearing a tank top because, hey, sun's out, gun's out. And so it feels amazing. You know, you can hardly contain yourself. The, the neighbors think that they see you skipping down the sidewalk. And that's just, again, a very small snapshot of what it's going to be like for the righteous on that great day when the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. Now notice the sun is characterized by righteousness, which means that these outcomes are just, they're right. If the righteousness and justice of God were in, in question, while the wicked seem to be getting away with murder and prospering even, there's going to be no more question about the goodness and the justice and the righteousness of God when the sun of righteousness rises. It says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, this idea of the sun having wings, that really fits well with visual depictions of the sun that, that come from that time and among that people around the time that Malachi wrote. You know, what we describe as rays, other cultures described as, as wings, and wings also kind of flutter. And so the, the picture, I think, at least to me, this portrays the sun as, as like fanning out its benefits more actively and more immediately. So this is, this is a way of describing the sun that the people of that time would be very familiar with and they would be also be very fond of. This is a beautiful, comforting picture. The wings of the sun furiously fanning, healing towards those who have been downtrodden. That's, that's a beautiful thing. And it's easy to see why interpreters down through church history have understood the son of righteousness to ultimately be a reference to Christ. Not only do son and son, you know, sound the same, S-U-N-S-O-N, but where else would our righteousness come from? Where else would healing come from? Not only that, but the unfolding revelation of scripture indicates that what is spoken of here 
is the day that Christ is going to be revealed. So there's all kinds of good reasons to see this as a, as a shadowy kind of glimpse at our Savior. Either way, we desperately need the, the reminder that our position, our stand, our joy, our clothes on that great day will have absolutely nothing to do with us but what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and in us. I'm reminded of the words of that great hymn of the faith. It goes, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear from guilt and shame. And it's all because of Christ. Now, before we move on, I, I want to just point out something that will likely strike you as odd. It might even strike you as wrong. And I won't dwell on it because you might not be able to bear it. We've seen how this future day is going to be a day of distinctions. How this same day is going to um, it's going to present two very different groups with two very different outcomes. It's a day of judgment for the wicked. And it's a day of salvation and healing for the righteous. So far, so good. I think you've, you've been able to see that so far, hopefully. And it's so, in our minds, it's so far so good if we can kind of, if these images can kind of stay in their own lanes. But that's not what they do. These overlap in verse 3. I want you to look at it, especially this, so that you don't think that I'm making this up. These overlap in verse 3, where the Lord says to the righteous, who at this point are, kicking up their hind legs, they're skipping, their, their, their feet are coming down hard on the ground, in the sun, they're jumping for joy. And the Lord says to the righteous, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. So do you see how these two pictures are now coming together? The wicked, like stubble, are consumed in the blazing heat of a furnace, they're reduced to ash. And, and can, can you handle this truth? This passage is declaring that the joy of the righteous, part of what constitutes the joy of the righteous on that great day, is tied to the judgment of the wicked. If that shocks you, if that sounds off to you, may I suggest that the problem is likely with your sensibilities rather than with scripture? And believe it or not, your problem is not that you are overly sensitive. Your problem at this point is that you're underly sensitive. You aren't sensitive enough. We aren't sensitive enough to how wicked wickedness is. 
Listen to the comments of a 19th century Anglican bishop named John Perrone. He says, such exaltation to our modern sensibilities seems shocking because we can hardly conceive of it apart from the gratification of our personal vindictiveness. But there is such a thing as righteous hatred and righteous scorn. There is such a thing as the shout of righteous joy at the downfall of a tyrant and oppressor, at the triumph of righteousness and the triumph of truth over wrong and falsehood. We need to have a category for that. We need for our sensitivities and our joy to be aligned with the way that the Lord thinks and acts. Now let's move quickly to the the second thing that we want to see from our passage, which is the duty, the duty, our duty, in light of that day. It's this, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but the simplicity of that verse is shocking to me after the the descriptions of verses 1 to 3. And it must be for other people too because I think it's so shocking that many critical scholars would rather believe that these verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, don't really belong originally to Malachi's prophecy. Um, they, They posit that sometime later some editor came along and added verses 4 to 6 in an an attempt to kind of wrap up the Old Testament. And I suppose it's a fitting way to close the Old Testament. Um, The law, it's a fitting way to close up the law and prophets when you are going to mention the most prominent law guy, Moses, and the most prominent prophet, Elijah. But I think their explanation for these verses is totally unnecessary. Because it's a very natural and fitting way to end Malachi, not just the Old Testament, to close with a reminder of what our duty is in light of the coming day of the Lord. For the people of Israel, they need to remember the law. And that word remember, it it doesn't mean just kind of think back on or reminisce on, reflect back on. No, the word remember always carries it with it the idea of remembering with a view to action. It's a very active kind of looking back. And so these, these are people in large part who are neglecting the law. They, they were offering lame, illicit lambs in their worship. They were not bringing in the full tithe, as we've seen. They were marrying unbelievers. They were divorcing their wives. They were neither loving God nor loving neighbor. And the call to these people is, remember the law that I gave and obey all the commands and statutes that God gave Moses. What about us? Now, I, uh, I don't want to, I hope I don't embarrass her, but some months ago I became friends with Miss Hannah Leary and uh, Andrew Smith's fiance. And subsequently we became Facebook friends. And I don't know how the Facebook algorithms work, but afterwards I started seeing videos from the National Bible Bee. 
And that's a, I don't know if you know about that, it's a wonderful program of uh, scripture memorization and then there's competitions for young people who are memorizing these huge chunks of scripture and then they get quizzed on it and have to recite these scriptures. Well, it turns out that Hannah competed for a number of years in this program and then later she became the host of the National Bible Bee, one of the hosts. And I think this is the first time that this has ever happened, but the Facebook algorithm recommended a video that they thought that I would like. And again, first time, they were right. That's never happened before, it hasn't happened since. But it was a clip of Miss Hannah Leary as a host reminiscing on her very last National Bible Bee as a competitor, as a high school senior. And she was talking about the very last passage that she recited, which was the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. And Hannah really did a beautiful job to reflect on how meaningful those verses were, that, you know, just the fact that by the grace of God, she was able to remember her creator in the days of her youth. But then she spoke of the very end of that book, where it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And, and how that simple duty just kind of propelled her forward into adulthood, into life. And friends, I'm saying that is truly the heart of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. And notice the, the root of that. Just, just hang with me, please. Notice the root of this duty. It's fear. That, that's the missing element in Malachi's day. People had no fear of the Lord, except for this group that we learned of last week, this remnant of people that feared the Lord, who esteemed his name. And then this root of fear results in fruit, which is humble, obedient, reverent service. Again, I don't want you to make any kind of mistake and come to any kind of wrong conclusion about what we're talking about. I'm not, and the Lord is certainly not, talking about any kinds of works righteousness where you can earn his favor by the things that you do, your obedience. Rather, it's on the other side. Obedience is the only proper response for a person who has learned the fear of the Lord. In light of the great and awesome day of the Lord that is most certainly coming, friends, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Don't overcomplicate your Christian life. The Lord just requires obedience. That's what he desires. And he gives you his spirit so that the things that he is pleased by um, can be produced in you by his grace and for his glory. Now, I'm uh, quickly running out of time, but I do, I have to mention the third thing that we see from this passage, which is the dispatch before the, that day. I'm looking at verse 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send 
Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Three very quick things to note about these two verses. There's a person, there's a purpose, and there's a perhaps. A person, a purpose, a perhaps. The person is Elijah. And the Lord declares that before this terrible and wonderful day comes, he's going to send another prophet, Elijah. Would this be the actual Elijah? Many people are wondering at that time, no doubt, um, because they would recall, and maybe you'll recall, that the actual Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven directly in a chariot. And many Jewish interpreters believed and still believe to this day that it will be in actu the actual Elijah that the Lord is speaking of here. But to me, I think it becomes very clear that, that this is someone who would come in the spirit of Elijah. Someone whose ministry would resemble that the ministry of that great prophet of old in terms of his dress, his mannerisms, and most importantly, in terms of his message. And that brings us to the next thing. What is the purpose? Why would this Elijah type be sent? And the answer is for a turning. For a turning. Malachi puts this beautifully in terms of family relationships, which in his day and in ours are horribly broken, let's just say. In his day, he's addressing adultery, divorce, intermarriage, and all of that has the effect of producing all kinds of pain and strife and division. And some of you, I think, know that experience full well. The Lord is very kind to send a prophet for the purpose of turning the heart of fathers back towards their sons and the heart of sons back towards their fathers. But I think it means more than that. You know, when you think about how those words father and son have been used so far in Malachi, remember God says, I'm your father. And later on, he, he calls his treasured possessions his sons that he's going to save. When you think about that, and when you think about the key verse in this whole prophecy, which is actually a gracious invitation where the, where the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. Then I think you can understand that what is ultimately in view here is the kind of repentance that's required on our part, on the part of sinners, in order for there to be a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. And then we understand why this is so absolutely necessary in the closing words of this prophecy, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is what's coming. That, that is what this world, that is what all of us deserve by default. So when I say perhaps, that's a bit misleading because that actually is a certainty for, for those who don't repent. The, the wages of sin, you understand, is death and eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. 
curse, actually. That's the very last word of the Old Testament. And it's a fitting one because that's exactly what every single one of us deserves. But do you see how all of this fits together? The Lord God, the offended party, the one that we've wearied and accused and blasphemed, this God graciously dispatches prophets for the purpose of our repentance. Do you see? He's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And 400 years later, he sends John the Baptist, about whom Jesus himself says, he is Elijah. And he comes, and he speaks about the nearness of a day, and he speaks about the need for repentance in light of that day. Now, for me, and for many other Bible students, including our brother Tom Dewey, we don't think that Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled exhaustively in John the Baptist. Or it's, it's not speaking exclusively about Jesus coming on the scene in his first advent. It's also, these verses are also speaking, and more fully and finally speaking about the second coming. And the Elijah types that might be dispatched ahead of that future great day. People that would come to preach a gospel of repentance. And uh, we're, we don't have the time for it today, but if you want to look more into that, you can look, you can check out Revelation chapter 11. And think, um, study a little bit about the two witnesses. Look and listen for the Elijah language that's described there um, as a prelude to a great day when the Lord himself will come. And I just want to say thank you to Tom for um, helping me think about these things and spurring my thinking on that matter. Well, we've come to the end of our series in Malachi. It's a sermon series that we've entitled The Airing of Grievances. But I don't want to close without reminding you and, and me that ultimately it was on his own son that all of God's grievances against us were aired. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, I declare to you today that there is a savior for sinners. You need not be destroyed in the burning oven of the wrath of God. There is one who has endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And the call to you today is, repent and believe on him and it's only in that way that you'll be able to stand on that great and awesome day of the Lord if you'd like to know more about what it looks to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ you're welcome to come to this front pew right after the service and there'll be uh, folks there that would love to talk with you and pray with you and show you Jesus